0: Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Ruiz, And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Europhile, the podcast where we cover Europe through a Washington lens. Today, we'll discuss Donald Trump's latest comments on NATO, which have really taken fire from Europe, from the campaign trail in South Carolina, the reactions in Europe, After that, we'll turn to the farmers' protests that have taken place in Europe recently, which have shaped both ongoing climate legislation and the run-up to this summer's EU parliamentary elections. And we'll briefly touch on really exciting news out of Northern Ireland. And then finally, we'll turn to our conversation with CSIS colleague Emily Benson. And with her, we broke down the recent Trade and Technology Council meeting here in DC. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Max, we got some interesting comments from Donald Trump on the trail in South Carolina last Saturday. We'll play a clip of what he said.
2: One of the presidents of a big country stood up, said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay.
1: You got to pay your bills. That's a pretty strong statement that has received strong reactions both here in the U.S. and in Europe. So what, what's what's uh, coming out of Europe about this and what's your take?
0: Yeah, well, so I was actually at a conference at Harvard, their 10th annual Europe conference, and there was a lot of conversations and questions about Donald Trump and what a Trump administration would mean. And that's frankly what we're getting from all sorts of European visitors when when I go to Europe and when Europeans come here. His comments came right at the end of the conference, so I didn't get everyone's sort of live reaction. But when I woke up on a Sunday morning, suddenly, you know, Europe was aflame. Look, I think many Europeans, particularly in the East, are trying to interpret this as just another a warning and and about Trump trying to extract more uh, financial commitments and investments from in defense from European countries and then if you know all everyone else just hit 2% we would all be fine if Spain would just increase their defense spending to 2% then then Donald Trump would be happy. I just don't think that that's the case. I think what is abundantly clear about Donald Trump and I think he's made that clear during his first term in office was that he is just not that into you. He's just not that into Europe. He's just not that into alliances and he doesn't want to go to war for you. That is the fundamental gist here. And I think the spending is kind of a sort of code for we just want you to take care of Defense yourself. And I think that's what Europeans aren't quite understanding, and I think are getting wrong here. Is that, you know, right now, if every European country spent 2%, that would be great. That would be great for NATO. But you know what wouldn't happen? They would still be dependent on the United States uh, for their security, because it's NATO is the United States. It is about European countries docking in to the military capacities and, and direction provided by the United States. And if you know we're not there. Well, they can't really operate together. And what Trump's 2% push is not that like, oh, he just wants NATO to have a bit more capacity no, this is really about we don't want to do this or he doesn't want to do this and do the, this being taking care of Europe and micromanaging European security. And I think that's the big revelation here. I and mean, it's not a big revelation because he's been saying it again and again. Now, the, the part of the comment being like, you know, Russia, do what you will. Well, I, I think that should scare Europeans even more given where Russia is, given what Putin has done, given the invasion. So I think we're in a very different place. I think Europe needs to wake up to the fact that America's approach to the transatlantic alliance is, is shifting. And, you know, if you remember back to the first Trump administration, many Europeans would say, well, it wasn't so bad. The major difference is that Trump came into office and he didn't have his people. Yet, it was pretty clear that Trump wasn't pro-NATO. At the first NATO summit that Trump attended, there was this big question of whether he was going to commit to Article 5. The New York Times came out with a story before his speech saying he was going to do it. And then in his speech, he didn't do it. Now, later, he kind of said, yes, I guess I would commit to Article 5. But it was never core to who he was. And now, if there is going to be a second Trump administration, which I'm definitely not sure that there will be, and I think there's every reason to believe there won't be, he's going to have his people. And there's already a policy agenda being developed to sort of pull back from NATO. And U.S. Congress passing a resolution saying that there has to be now two-thirds of the Senate to withdraw from NATO won't make a bit of difference because it will be about the U.S. just simply pulling back our engagement.
1: Well, it also is a huge blow to the deterrent message. It's not just whether or not he can actually take the U.S. out of NATO, it's... Both the NATO comment and the Russia comment together is a problem for our deterrence position. because, And that's, I think, what the Secretary General of NATO has said as well. is like it, it doesn't send the right message. And as you were saying, he's not making a technical point about people meeting the 2% target, he's making a point about his vision of Europe, about his vision of the transatlantic alliance. And whoever says that the first Trump administration was, it was okay. And sure, it was survivable for the transatlantic relationship, but it put a huge strain on it and both in defense, but also trade. It has consequences we're still dealing with today. I joined CSIS in the fall of 2016 and in the Europe program, we spent four difficult years trying to understand what the new dynamics were going to be. So the second time around, if there is a second time around, is not going to be a redo. It's going to be much further down that road, most likely. And to be clear, there's not a partisan point we're making. This is just being clear-eyed about the position of Trump, but also the position increasingly of the Republican Party on the alliance. And while many Republican senators still support Ukraine, etc., ultimately, as you said, he's going to put his people in place and they share his vision of alliances, not just in Europe, but in the world, really.
0: Well. and just on the last point it's not as many Republican Senators as one would have thought the vote just happened in the in the Senate this morning we're recording on Tuesday they got to 70 votes which is good roughly half the Republican caucus but then prominent Republican Senators did not vote for Ukraine aid now they were saying well they wanted to somewhere Lindsey Graham was saying well he thinks Ukraine's important but the border is more important but whatever it is they didn't vote for it and this is where I think things are fundamentally different in the transatlantic relationship or will be different when it comes to NATO is that Trump's viewpoint is not now a fringe view within American politics. And it has gained a lot of currency amongst Republicans. But then you also look at Democrats and there will be a president after Joe Biden, uh, whether that happens in 2025 or 2029. And if that's a future Democratic president or Republican president, they're not going to have the same attachment to NATO that someone that uh, that was, uh, you know, spent most of their life during the Cold War. And I think that means that things are going to change. And what I have to say is that the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz came to Washington last week and was here. And it was, you know, a good visit. And Germany's doing a lot for Ukraine or there's what they're providing is rather remarkable for Germany. But I think when you now look at the Zeitenwende that was announced, you know, in the days after the invasion and and Schultz declaring a new era, and it was a really bold statement and a hundred billion euro fund. I think now that I look back at the Zeitenwende what I see is that Germany changing its policies on defense somewhat, but to really try to maintain the status quo. And I think what I see from Germany is, yes, they're providing a lot to Ukraine, but their basic view is if we just buy American, buy a lot of American weapons and are you know committed to NATO and we block things from happening at the EU level, which Germany is currently doing on a lot of EU defense efforts, then that will make Washington happy. And then we can sort of maintain the kind of current dependence that we have and just sort of continue on with our lives. And I just think that's completely misguided and a bad strategy because what America actually wants from Germany, and this has been the case, you know, whether on the Euro crisis, whether no no matter what big issue, is we want Germany to lead Europe. And right now, Germany isn't really leading Europe when it comes to thinking about its defense and security. And I think that's where the United States essentially is. While, you know, there's a difference now in the parties and how they view NATO, the problem is that that is going to manifest itself into lack of. Of support for NATO uh, over the long run, there will be a re- another Republican administration. I don't think this is necessarily going away.
1: And we've seen Germany hedge in similar ways with the China policy, for example. So they're they are and understandably consumed by domestic politics too, because the coalition has been struggling for a while. So they they have this inability to focus on the next strategic step, and instead just say. Well, well, we're going to keep doing what we were doing because it's working for us without having that overall vision, both of the EU and the relationship with the United States. I think that's a big problem that they're going to run into very soon.
0: Maybe just a, a last point here. I mean, there's, this has been, Trump's comments have led to a lot of intra-European bickering between Eastern Europeans saying, you know, everyone just needs to spend 2%, everything will be fine. And the French saying, see, strategic autonomy was right. You know, we were right all along. But look, I think the major problem that Europe has, everyone wants to point to spending, but what we've pointed to in a lot of the work that we've done at CSIS and a big report that we did last year that I did with Otto Svensson and some of the work we've been doing up to the NATO summit is not really a spending issue. I mean, there is spending; they have to invest. That is that is a huge challenge. But it's how Europe organizes itself in defense, which is that you have all these twenty-seven different pentagons. No one coordinates anything, and NATO just tries to sort of knit this all together. But it's knit together through the United States. So if the United States is going to pull back it leads to deep structural problems with how Europe can defend itself because right now European states don't think about Europe. They think about national security, national defense when they need to be thinking about European defense. And this isn't about creating a European army, but it's about Europeanizing European armies and European defense. And so that's some of the work that we'll continue to do as we lead up to the Washington summit. And and hopefully this Trump's comments will, in a positive way, lead to some wake-up calls about what Europe needs to do.
1: And it's also about better spending the euros they put towards them. Yeah. It's as simple as that. But- speaking of spending on other priorities. We
0: need to transition to talk about what this, you know, two weeks ago, after our previous episode, Dan Etienne said, okay, we need to make this about farmers, because there's, you know, these farmer protests are really gaining some steam. And I thought, nah, the Europeans just protest all the time. This doesn't... Well, we this, do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And lo and behold, it seemed like every person with a tractor was in, uh, in their uh, local European capitals or or making their way to Brussels. I don't know how you drive a tractor that far from uh, other parts of uh, Europe, but they got there. They have Uh,
1: very large wheels. And
0: and it led to major impact and major changes. So what, what happened?
1: So we've seen protests for the last few weeks in many countries in Europe, most visibly in Brussels, but also in parts of France. And they blocked a lot of roads in Brussels. So let me tell you, local news was on fire with this, especially because it was right around the European Council. And they burned down a famous statue, yeah. That too, but, you know, part for the course in European protests. Um, but basically, they're protesting against some issues around prices and inflation and also some EU legislation that has passed over the last few years. The grievances are a little bit different depending on where you are. So in Poland, in Hungary, and you and I have talked about this before, a lot of the concerns are around Ukrainian agriculture and produce coming out of Ukraine through Poland, through Hungary to help the agricultural sector in Ukraine, because that's a huge source of funding for the country. But they're saying that that hurts their farmers because the prices are different. In other places, in Spain, in France, uh, in in Greece, for example, some of the concerns are more around prices. Diesel fuel is more expensive, animal feed, and then changes in environmental rules. So sustainable agriculture is a big element of the EU Green Deal. And to a, a green economy, there's some tax, issues that people are are concerned about. Now, you could say, why are farmers complaining when the common agricultural policy is a third of the EU budget? Well, that's because some of the policy has been targeted for the last few decades in a way that has encouraged consolidation of large farms and large agricultural enterprises. And smaller operations are less competitive increasingly, even though there's a ton of talk about farm to fork and local agriculture, things like that. The incentives are really focused on really large economies of scale. So some of the smaller farms, just their costs have gone up and it's it's much harder to, to do that. It's also just Global competition on produce and things coming from other countries outside the EU. So these are the different incentives that they're dealing with. And so they've decided that now is enough. And so there's large protests in a bunch of places. Two things for me that are really important dynamics that I want to keep our eyes on going forward is... On the one hand, right-wing and far-right parties have really tried to co-opt those movements to say, well, look at the big, bad Brussels, what they did to our good farmers. And this is not to malign the farmers. This is, I just think it's it's not entirely genuine, I think, on the part of some of these parties. It's just they see an, a, an opportunity ahead of the EU elections because it's the right window of time to really inflame these concerns leading up to June. Like We're not far enough away that people are going to forget, I think. So that's, that's one part of it is the co-optation by some of these parties. Now, interestingly, in some places like Romania, the farmers movements have said, no, no, we don't need your help and we don't want political parties involved in this. In other places, though, it hasn't worked the same way. Obviously, in France, the National Rally—I was going to say National Front—because I'm over thirty—obviously um, is jumping on that bandwagon. Other far-right parties as well. So that's one aspect. The other thing that is a potentially a concern is backed the EU backtracking on some of the commitments it has made around the green transition, decarbonization, and reforestation. Because already last year, when we were looking at the ambitious targets that they sent that they set. Looking out to 2030, some targets are on track around electric vehicles, things like that. Others, for example, reforestation, are way off the mark, and this is a concern for agriculture this is for agriculture as well, because obviously there's a dispute around what, how do we use the land? Because unlike in the US, our land in Europe is like more limited in in space and scope, so we need to decide what to do with it. And the EU has really led on in terms of setting ambitious targets, so it would create concerns for me that this would affect their role in this leading position on green transition targets. And obviously, those two dynamics are linked because we've seen increasingly even the European People's Party, which is a right wing, some people would say center right, I think it's increasingly right wing, has backtracked on some of these commitments, pushed back increasingly on the targets that the EU wants to set on the green transition. So we could see just this whole thing jeopardize the extent to which the green deal can go
0: some of my kind of major takeaways. I mean, one, it is kind of interesting that this is sort of European wide and there was a clear kind of demonstration effect of protests and you know, I think, I think, There was a lot of protests in Berlin, in particular, where Germans were reacting to diesel prices because suddenly the German government had to, because the crazy constitutional court, which we've talked about, had to find more funds. And so they got rid of the diesel subsidy, which affects uh, farmers. German government didn't back down there because the Schulze's party, the SPD, Greens, nor the FDP have, farmers are a big constituency. They tend to be CDU. So the farmers didn't do that well. But So in, in Germany, they didn't work. But in other places uh they've had real political uh impact and this is where i think the major geopolitical effect of this is it looks like the mercosur trade deal between the eu and and south america is now on ice and this was really i think important geopolitically because it was going to you know, link EU and South America, particularly at a time when China is looking to expand its, its business dealings in South America. And it was, what was it, the cause? Well, French farmers were really freaked out about it. And Emmanuel Macron didn't really want to uh, you know deal with that. And so then basically went to Brussels and said, we can't move forward with, with Mercosur. So the Mercosur trade deal is now on ice. And I think on the climate side, my takeaway there is like i think we're hitting the limits to some of the eu's regulatory approach toward climate where you know the eu has regulatory powers doesn't have uh, a lot of funding except really on agriculture where, you know, it's ironic that all all those farmers are protesting the EU and a third of the EU budget goes to farmers. But the EU approach to climate has been carbon pricing and regulations. And what subsidies are provided are then done at a state level. But the subsidies then vary across states because different states have different fiscal capacity. And so I think if you want to have European-wide progress on a lot of these areas that then impact farmers, or when you start hitting kind of the average person and they you want them to change out their home heating system, and you're just going to make it more expensive for them to have heating as opposed to paying them. As someone going through a renovation, which I think I've talked about a million times on this podcast, well, I'm you know, looking forward to the subsidies I'm going to get for solar panels on my roof and for no longer having a gas boiler and for having heat pumps, and thanks to the IRA. And so we're providing subsidies, but the EU doesn't have that capacity to do so. And so I think that hits at one of the challenges that EU is going to have going forward in trying to hit its climate goals if it doesn't uh, act more from a fiscal capacity uh, point of view.
1: Yeah, as always, it is a problem of the capacity because... As you said, the the EU level regulations trickle down to the national level and there they can take the form of subsidies to try to incentivize the right behavior. But there's only so much fiscal capacity that happens at the national level, especially at a time where a lot of countries in Europe are still heavily indebted because of COVID-19 and hopefully continuing to provide support for Ukraine, etc. So there's just a limit there that could be expanded with more EU-level fiscal capacity, but as we all know, we're not there.
0: But let's end On a positive note. A positive note in Northern Ireland, those are two things that rarely go together in a sentence, but there's good news out of Northern Ireland. What happened?
1: Very good news. So the executive there, which is the Northern Ireland-level government, has reformed after two years of absence. And before that was briefly together and before that was out for three years. So it's just been the last six, seven years of severe instability in the Northern Ireland governing capacity. The other thing that is really important to note is that unlike the last time, for the first time ever, the first minister, which is the prime minister at the level of the devolved government, is from Sinn Féin, from a Republican party. It's Michelle O'Neill, who's the Sinn Féin leader in Northern Ireland. This is the first time there's not a unionist first minister since partition in 1921. Now, the deputy first minister is from the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is obviously the unionists. They have technically the same power, but only one has the title of first minister. And That's a pretty big deal because in 2022, in the assembly elections, Sinn Féin surpassed the DUP. And that meant that the next time around, they were going to get the first minister position. There's another unionist party, and then the alliance party, which is a non-sectarian party, will get ministerial positions as well. So we're really going to see a different shape in the devolved government, which I find pretty exciting in terms of prospects for more stable governance in Northern Ireland that is not so focused on the parochial interests of the two parties, primarily Sinn Féin and the DUP. And that was made possible by the UK government unlocking over three billion pounds of fiscal support because Northern Ireland is currently going through a bit of a Fiscal crisis, public services really need more investment and there's been public distress because of that. But the package, the funding package out of London will be fully delivered if there is work done to revive some of the Good Friday Agreement institutions. And I think that's really important as well because it's carrots and sticks for the executive to stay together and really move forward on very important local policies that they have to put in place.
0: It seems that this is also one of the headaches of bre- Brexit. It's not resolved by any means, but that part of the with the lack of formation of a government was in part related to the DUP being strongly opposed to the deal that was cut between the UK and the EU on trade of goods between Northern Ireland and the UK and in the, in the EU, where Northern Ireland now has a sort of separate status where it's sort of in both countries, quote unquote. Which is
1: very unpleasant to unionists. Yeah. And the DUP leader has said, we got those concessions and that smoothed over the Irish border trading concept. So now it'll be easier for goods that go from Great Britain, which is the one island, going over to Northern Ireland and staying in Northern Ireland. So it seems like that that's the one last thing that they need to figure out is making sure that it actually works with the Windsor framework that was signed between the UK and the EU. But it seems like it could be enough Small tweaks without changing
0: the spirit of the agreement. Right, it's sort of a, a delicate fudge, and and when Rishi Sunak was you know trying to sell it initially, there was uh, sort of humorous uh, lines about you know how you get the benefit of both in Northern Ireland of being both in the UK and the EU, and a lot of folks in the the rest of the UK were like, well, you know, we used to have that deal. Uh, <laughs> so, but I think this is really good news because look, there's going to be a new UK government at some point between now and, and the next year, and I think the hope is that we we can sort of begin to turn the page on Brexit and look to have more productive relations between the UK and EU and that includes uh, between Northern Ireland, Ireland and the UK. So good news there and as the US being a party to the peace process, I think very good news here in Washington. I think with that, maybe we'll transition to our conversation with the great Emily Benson about the US-EU Trade and Technology Council.
1: thrilled to be joined by a friend of the pod an expert on all things transatlantic trade and tech, Emily Benson, for a conversation on the Trading Technology Council. Emily is director of the CSIS Project on Trade and Technology and senior fellow in the Shoal Chair in International Business, where she focuses on trade, investment and technology issues, primarily in the transatlantic context.
2: Emily, welcome back to the Eurofile. Thank you so much for having me. Front of the pod is quite the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> it is an honor we are bestowing upon you. This is true. So
1: last week on January 30th was the fifth ministerial of the Trade and Technology Council between the EU and the US. You hosted a fantastic event here at CSIS with two commissioners, Commissioner Versteer and Commissioner Dombrovskis, who talked about a lot of these issues. The message coming out of the TTC, at least in the commentariat is that a lot of things were talked about. They covered economic security, expert control, AI, semiconductors, et cetera. But what about deliverables? It feels to me like there was a lot of we talked about this, but not we took new decisions to do X, Y, Z. Was that expected or were you hoping to see a little more come out of the TTC?
2: I think that we, for a long time, have had unreasonable expectations about what the TTC could produce and on what timeline. The TTC was never supposed to be a replacement to the TTIP, a large-scale FTA between the European Union and the United States. Some listeners will recall that the lack of a T-Tip like instrument really surfaced during the fallout of the Inflation Reduction Act, where a bunch of U.S. legislators realized, oh my gosh, we actually don't have an FTA with the EU. However, the TTC was not intended to go back and rehash a lot of these kind of thornier, more traditional trade issues, whether it's on agricultural uh, imports or exports or automobiles. This was really intended to be a forward-looking Dialogue on new and emerging issues that covers green tech, artificial intelligence, maybe an outbound investment instrument. So the idea here has always been to lay the foundation to seek broader philosophical alignment before doing something that would actually be binding and create new rules and regulations. So if that all along has been the primary goal, then I think this recent fifth ministerial in Washington was actually a resounding success. You really got the sense from being here physically in Washington the town was a buzz. A lot of people, a lot of friends flew in from Brussels, Paris. It was a fantastic showing. And even more, you can tell that some of the principals have developed very close interpersonal relationships through this process. And if anything that comes out of this boils down to two political leaders becoming besties in the transatlantic context, then that's a pretty great outcome. That to me seems like a big success.
0: Yeah, we actually at this event uh, launched the project on the future of Europe. And part of it was the idea that the U.S. and EU need to have closer collaboration like this. And Margarita Vestager, even in her comments, said as much that this has built real rapport. But maybe I want to press you a little bit on the deliverables, because there could be you know, someone could look back on this the last now two and a half years, because it was launched in the fall of, of 2021 in Pittsburgh, and say, okay, yeah, they put to the side the kind of long-standing trade disputes, whether you know Airbus Boeing and and other issues that were just you know roiling transatlantic relations, particularly during the Trump years. And it's supposed to be forward-leaning, and so there are things that were identified, like my favorite acronym now is GASA, the Global Arrangement on Sustainable Steel and Aluminum, and they were also hoping, I think, at the sort of final TTCs of, of this first term of this administration and of the European Parliament, to also have something on critical battery minerals. Why did we not get sort of a tangible breakthrough on these issues, and what does that say about the TTC and the challenge of, of USEU cooperation?
2: This might be pedantic or nitpicky, but from an innocent outsider's perspective, I did not get the impression that GASA or IRA-relevant issues like critical minerals were ever intended to be part of the TTC. The TTC was stood up at a time when some of these were really coming to the fore. The gas negotiations or GSA, as they're referred to in the EU, is essentially about undoing a decision reached by the Trump administration on tariffs. And so that's exactly the type of discussion that political leaders hoped would stay out of the TTC. Of course, we're living in this news cycle where we have constant ministerials and then also constant gas negotiations and ongoing critical mineral dialogues, and it's easy to conflate them. But they really are separate work streams. And although there is some staff concentricity, they are happening under different banners. And so I think that we tend to say, well, why didn't the TTC deliver? Well, it wasn't really the TTC's job. But I hear you on concrete outcomes. And if you look at artificial intelligence, we need rules and regulations yesterday on this really important emerging technology. And we don't have that. There's been some progress in the TTC. They have moved forward on codifying language that would protect a free, fair and open Internet, combat disinformation. But we don't have that really binding mechanism that would create some new principle where the rest of the world can say, look, they did this together and we are all aligned and it achieves tremendous global South buy-in. That didn't happen. And I think that speaks to a longer standing philosophical difference between the way that the European Union and United States regard regulation. And that harkens back to other long-standing issues like agricultural issues where we get to an impasse. And I personally am of the belief that we will have to overcome that philosophical difference if we want to be organized going forward. We're stronger together. We have almost a billion people when we combine. And when we do things separately, it's sort of like Brexit on a smaller scale, you lose a lot of that negotiating authority that comes with the size of your economy and the know how of your population. And going forward, this is a very important juncture in global history where we can build the future. And if the TTC does continue, they really need to act like we have a small window to effectuate change because the window will not get bigger. It will only get smaller. You
1: mentioned AI in particular and some of the broader philosophical differences. We've seen at the same time, on the one hand, a lot of the statements coming out of last week's meeting are talking about the importance of interoperable standards and cooperation. But at the same time, multilateral negotiations on AI at the moment, Europeans keep pushing for the private sector to be included in this And the United States wants nothing to do with that is my understanding of in layman's term of where we stand on, on those negotiations. What kind of prospect do you see for getting over those philosophical differences when you have such sensitive technology, but that has so much potential for everyday life and also economic growth?
2: We have a tendency in foreign affairs to think that governments will identify a common objective or problem and then build a very thoughtful, preemptive way of confronting the problem. That probably is less true than really bad external things happen that put a lot of pressure on governments and then they panic and put something together that actually ends up being pretty workable and substantive in the long run. And we'll probably see something like that. I was a little bit optimistic when this chat GPT style of large language model came on the scene last year because that's something that we can all use. I use it. I'm sure commissioners use it. You can pull it up on your app. And I'm sure your dad has read you some heinously outrageous thing he wrote um, full of dad jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to use
0: it for that. I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) There you go. Cue it up. (laughs) Be armed with great dad jokes.
2: <laughs> exactly <laughs> you can make a max GPT yeah. that's just max skews out jokes.
0: annoy my children even more. Thank you, thank you, AI.
2: But, but what that says is it's very omnipresent and it, it kind of in a way that Facebook used to be when everyone started using it at the same time. And I think we kind of missed the opportunity there to do something where we had this external event, there everyone was tuning into the same issue at the same time. And it probably will take something a little bit scarier on the AI front before we really figure out how to go about it. But it's really difficult because at the heart of governing AI will be the issue of data flows. And, of course, this has also been a longstanding issue in the transatlantic relationship. We have reached some sort of agreement that keeps data flows up and running for now. The Biden administration is rumored to be working on some sort of executive action that would govern data flows, TBD on the exact content, but that actually could potentially represent some acknowledgement in the European style of regulating the digital economy. We'll have to see how that plays out. But I think there are some undercurrents afoot that point towards greater possibilities for convergence, probably on a closer time horizon.
1: And that executive action, whatever form it takes, would address the concerns that have consistently come out of Europe
2: regarding data flows, the reason why multiple agreements have been shot down by the court. I think this one probably would be related to national security, and so it would be very American in its approach to the problem, but I think a step in a very concrete direction towards at least some sort of governance mechanism.
0: The irony here, I think, when it comes to the TTC is that many have sort of proclaimed it as a failure, but yet when you look at US-EU relations, they've sort of never been better, never been stronger, particularly when it comes to a lot of the, the cooperation on big foreign policy issues like China, like Russia. And one of the examples of success that I hear sometimes mentioned from the TTC is actually sanctions policy. While not part of the TTC, the same people working on the same issues were you know, then working together on sanctions. So if there's greater familiarity and you're working together through this forum, well, it spins off cooperation. Is that how you see it? That this has been sort of a structured dialogue? Maybe they're, the big flashy progress hasn't been there, but they've been able to kind of spin off ways to work together, but it hasn't really solved necessarily the areas where there's sort of deeper kind of ideological differences.
2: One of my favorite phrases about foreign affairs is about diplomacy, and it's that a big win in diplomacy is a crisis averted. That's really annoying if you are a diplomat because you're never making the headline news, Right, you just staved off some huge problem and no one hears about it. And I think that's kind of a helpful way to frame what's going on in the TTC. It's people who are texting. They have each other's contact info. It's a bilateral channel open all the time. That's very helpful. And we tend to forget when there's a change in government here in the U.S., there's a lot of turnover. People come in and they don't have their new email address yet. That's a very logistical issue that the TTC has been extraordinarily adept at mitigating. The problem is that there's a lot of churn in Washington, average tenure in is 2.3 years for a job It's much, much shorter within the government, especially at the level that you'd be staffing something like the TTC. And so we're starting to see some new faces, some people cycling out. And so it'll be interesting to see just, again, from a logistical perspective, how the TTC can keep what is its biggest success, the people-to-people contact.
0: In some of the, the more tangible differences that have emerged during the TTC? I mean, did we see kind of splits over policy toward China and export controls, W views of WTO? What were the kind of areas where... Perhaps you were hopeful of progress, but, like you know, there's clear just sort of we see things differently on a few issues,
1: and can I add on to that just because you wrote with our colleague Federico, a great piece on economic security, in which you talk about the difference in approach for the u s and the EU side in all these discussions on the focus in Europe remains heavily on Russia, whereas here it's heavily on China. Is this potentially contributing to divergences in approach, or can those two things work in parallel?
2: Certainly, on China, big. Differences and approaches remain. The US is all eyes on China or the Indo Pacific at all times. It's difficult to have an affirmative agenda building session where the US is only wanting to talk about China. As you mentioned, it's very different from the European Commission, which is confronting war at its doorstep. And here, we're all ears on China also. And so it creates this kind of dichotomy where. The European Commission is very preoccupied, but then the U.S. is doing something completely different, and the U.S. is doing it in a country-specific way. The European Union, Russia aside, is very country agnostic in its economic security approach, and... I think that is a marked difference. And so there's been a lot of discussions recently about, of course, export controls, how we go about crafting rules for export control rules themselves. Can we just apply these unilateral extraterritorial tools constantly and A, still have friends? And then B, is it a good idea to aim these economic statecraft tools at one very obvious target? And the U.S. tends to say, yes, all of the above. The European Union says, well, let's take a more cautious approach. And also, we do need to confront the likelihood of retaliatory measures From China. We don't want to risk further economic harm from something that we're still kind of figuring out where we stand. And that's really come up in the economic security strategy context in the European Union. If you read the white paper specifically on export controls, it's actually very readable. So I recommend that everyone read it. But the European Commission takes a very hard stance on what it refers to as external geopolitical pressure. And this harkens back to the anti-coercion instrument, which actually they designed as a method of confronting American trade policy under the Trump administration. So you see an effort to want to be their own decision maker, beef up their trade remedy toolkit and their uh, geoeconomic statecraft toolkit at the same time but to do it in a very distinctly European way. And we probably will see some hard questions asked. People will have to make decisions in the coming couple of years about where to converge and where to diverge. But that really didn't come up in a way that I thought it would at this latest TTC.
0: So we're entering an election year in both on both continents. I guess, what do you see the future of the TTC? It seems like if this next one that's coming up in April in Belgium is the last of the TTCs, I mean, it seems like if it goes away, you would have to reinvent it. What what do you see sort of the future of the TTC and also just of US-EU economic cooperation? Do you think we're kind of on the cusp? Is this the cusp of something bigger? Was this sort of the last few years? Do you think that paved the way for sort of closer economic cooperation?
2: It's a difficult question. And it depends on who's in power, particularly on one side of the Atlantic. And I think that will definitely guide the future of the TTC. Another interesting question I've been thinking about is whether or not the framework, the kind of setup of the TTC, is something we should replicate elsewhere. It's pretty clear that we're moving away from free trade agreements or even the WTO system as a whole. We're not doing these big regional FTAs anymore. Even the Mercosur deal is probably imperiled now after years and years of negotiations. And that's an EU South America deal that doesn't even involve the United States. So the question is, once we're shifting to this new chapter, this new future, what are the rules? What does economic cooperation look like? Is this a good blueprint that we could apply to other relationships, other alliances? Who do we trust? Who do we want in these kind of roaming, little bit loose, mini arrangements? And is that desirable? I think there are clear benefits to going about it this way. Obviously, principled buy-in, strong bilateral communication channels, tremendous flexibility, also agility. If something like ChatGPT comes onto the scene, the parties can react very, very quickly. That's not the case with a giant mega FTA. And so in that sense, they're good. Uh, The drawback is that membership is kind of loose. You have staffers coming in and out, and the rules are usually not binding. I think AUKUS is kind of the Um, exception there. But so it's a good opportunity to see during a political transition in the United States, whether it's Biden 2.0 or potentially a second Trump administration, really how a political change affects the way that the United States goes about engagement in these smaller minilateral deals. So that's something I'm keen to watch in the coming year. To close the conversation, now that you've seen this,
1: what you seem to think was a pretty successful TTC meeting last week in here in D.C., do you think, because I think we asked you this question last time we talked to you, is there are things that Europeans still don't quite get about the way the U.S. approaches trade and tech and vice versa that you think they really need to keep in mind?
2: Usually it's easy to point to something very obvious and say, see, look, this is an example of where they completely diverge. What surprised me about this latest ministerial was where they did converge, and that's on this new emerging topic in town, which is on chip overcapacity. And here the idea is similar to a discussion we're having about electric vehicle overcapacity, especially in the European Union. And I think we're about to have a big discussion about that here in the United States. But there is this huge glut in semiconductor capacity worldwide right now, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, obviously, is Chinese subsidies that can go and flood the market. Another actually is China is experiencing an economic downturn. So that means less demand domestically, more chips going abroad. Also, companies way overbought during COVID. I'm from Kansas City. They had to shut down uh, automobile factory plants and furlough workers because they couldn't get enough chips into the Ford plants. And companies really learned. And now they have all these huge stockpiles of chips. Also, the semiconductor industry is very prone to cycles, upswings, downswings. We're currently in a global downswing. So you put all these Pressures onto one part of the global economy, and it is creating a big overcapacity problem. What surprised me at the TTC is that it sounds like some of the principles on both sides are really bought into this idea that China is primarily responsible for the overcapacity and that it merits a trade remedy. So that'll have to be the next chapter. Again, that looks just like steel or electric vehicles. Do they come together? Do they converge? Usually there's a little bit more of a back and forth and a fact finding mission that's data driven that says, look, we have this evidence that points to this particular set of domestic policies in a foreign jurisdiction that we can trace to the supply chain outcome. I haven't seen enough concrete evidence to suggest that that really happening now. And so it seems like an early stage assumption upon which they are likely to build some sort of economic allied response. And that just seems different than it's been in the past. I'm curious to see particularly how that unfolds in the coming months.
0: Well, it seems like the vibes are good. And with good vibes, then sometimes that can lead to working together in cooperative action. So, Emily, thanks so much for giving us the rundown and educating us on all that happens, not just this PTC, but the Train Technology Council in general.
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Sean Falk, and to Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.